Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Andrew Ching, who is a professor in the Case Carey Business School at the Johns Hopkins University, where he is cross-appointed to the Department of Economics and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is currently serving as an associate editor for management science and a member of the editorial, editorial boards for marketing science and journal of marketing research. His research focuses on developing new empirical structural models and estimation methods to understand the forward-looking strategic uh, learning and bounded rational behavior of consumers and firms. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much, Gilles. Yeah, so I want to start with one of your papers, Identification and Estimation of Forward-Looking Behavior, the Case of Consumer Stockpiling, um, in which you say understanding how forward-looking consumers respond to price promotions in storable goods uh, markets is an important area of research in empirical marketing and industrial organization. In prior work, researchers have assumed that consumers in these markets are very forward-looking and calibrated their weekly discount factors to to levels around 99.95%. And this calibration has been used because earlier research has assumed that the consumer storage cost is a continuous function of inventory which rules out exclusion and restrictions that can be used to identify the discount factor. Um, So this is um, looking at price promotions, but I I guess this could have some extensions to um, lack of availability related things too, right? I'm thinking about COVID and the toilet paper (laughs) or things like that. Um, Yeah, Yeah. you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, uh, yes, I can can, uh, say a few words about that. Uh, And... uh... As, as you mentioned, my paper uh, with uh, Matthew Osborne, uh, Professor Matthew Osborne at the University of Toronto. Uh, yeah. And uh, by the way, prior to my uh, position at Johns Hopkins, I was at the University of Toronto. Yeah. Uh, and so that's how we started the project. Uh, and um, our, uh, our emphasis is on uh, consumer stockpiling decisions. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, 
And it, you know, the, a few months ago, you know, we all experienced uh, uh, the uh, the scary moments of not able to find toilet papers, <laughs> right. uh, not to mention uh, disinfectants, uh, sprays, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of other things, uh, basic supplies, um, and uh, so that uh, that to what we are doing, uh, and <laughs> uh, and it has a lot to do with those uh, expectations about the future. Yeah. Um, and uh, so one thing that um, that drives our decisions on how much you want to buy in each occasion. Uh, yeah. is a function of, um, so first, how, how far ahead you think, right? That's mm. what other discount factors try to measure. Uh, and in, in addition, uh, how, uh, what would be the price look like um, a few periods later, uh, a yeah. few weeks later? Uh, and, uh, and also, whether you will find it on the shelf. Right. Uh, now, typically, uh, that availability is not really a concern. I mean, you know, you go to the supermarket, how often you will really find your favorite brand is out of stock. Uh, I mean, you find, you know, we, we encounter that, but it's really not that often. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but now, you know, uh, the out of stock is almost like, uh, it's equivalent to the price becomes really high. Right. And so if you anticipate, um, that down the road, uh, a few weeks later, or even a few months later, uh, you are not going to be able to find, or very difficult to find this item on the shelf, um, which, you know, almost like translated to the shadow price for those products becomes very high. Yeah. Uh, then it will lead to our behavior to stockpile uh, as much as possible when mm. you see it, you know. And so, um, so the, the panic buying behavior to some degree, I think it can be rationalized using our model. Yeah. Explain it in terms of this kind of forward looking behavior. Great. And so, so there are, there are multiple things there. So one is how far does the consumer look and, um, how does she essentially, let's say, just, we look, just looking at pricing. Um, presumably the consumer has to forecast future price, right? And then, yes. and then make a, make a decision based on that. Um, and I guess into that will go considerations around how much storage space is available, uh, what the use intensity is going to be and so on. So the consumer takes all this information and makes a decision. You say the previous uh, studies uh, assume that the, the storage cost is a continuous function of inventory. And yes. so, so the discount rate that they came up with, 99.95%, uh, you're arguing that that would be different if you kind of relax those assumptions. That's right, yeah. So uh, uh, just, you know, that argument is a little technical, but I can uh, basically tell you yeah. um, because of that, uh, assumption, um, which is a really a simplification for modeling viewpoints, um, it will make the models easier to solve uh, yeah. by assuming that um, how you know, our storage cost is uh, it decreases as you consume um, uh, your inventory, uh, and uh, now. Unfortunately, that assumption actually 
rule out what we call the identification power or, or the, some identification uh, information in the data. Hmm. Um, and, and so in the past research, uh, researchers actually give up in estimating how forward-looking consumers are. Hmm. So when they build these kind of models, uh, they would just assume, when, that's what, I, what we meant, they just assume that people are uh, very forward-looking. They, they right. think about, um, they plan years ahead. Um, and uh, if we t we are talking about savings decisions, yeah. consume how much you want to save in your, and how much you want to put aside for retirement, that that's very reasonable, right? If you're thinking about retirement savings, you're thinking you many years ahead. Uh, but if you're thinking about uh, grocery uh, shopping, like buying toilet papers, buying laundry detergent, yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of doubt that uh, people are planning years ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. They, they may be planning weeks ahead. They might uh, be planning now, but they may suddenly become more forward looking. Right. Uh, but still, you know, it's not like years ahead, right? Sure. Maybe one year ahead. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, what we are basically arguing is uh, make a more reasonable assumptions about how the storage cost with consumption, hmm. okay, um, we can actually get a much and be incorporated in the in our model uh, and use that features in our model to uh, to do the estimation. Um, we actually get a much more realistic discount factor, uh, and and that's what we have. You know, our discount factor, our estimated discount factor is, is on average in the populations of upon seven. And that translated to um, individuals are planning uh, weeks ahead, not years ahead. Um, and uh, and our assumptions is you know um, is actually quite intuitive. Our assumption is that um, when you consume, let's say you consume a laundry detergent, yeah. Uh, and as you consume, you know you use up, you know your bottle may become lighter and lighter, but your bottle is still there. Right. Right, your bottle is still that it still occupies just as much space as before. So the storage cost remains sort of lumpy. That exactly. Yeah. The, the storage cost is very lumpy, um, and in most uh, in most cases, uh, and and we are taking advantage of this assumption. Uh, okay. And and therefore we are able to basically see that hey, when people uh, reduce their consumption, you know, reduce their inventory at home, hmm. um, you know, for people who are uh, very forward-looking. The less inventory they have, uh, they should, uh, you know, to, to what extent they um, they react to uh, to the price discount. Uh, mm. That would give us some information about how forward-looking they are. Yeah. Uh, so and, and how much they stockpile. You know, that kind of uh, that kind of uh, behavior can tell us how how forward-looking a consumer is. Right. So, so if I understand this correctly, Andrew, um, if you make all those um, more realistic assumptions, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. the discount rate drops quite dramatically from 99% to 71%. So um, am I reading this correctly that that would mean that a lower discount rate um, means that the, um, the, the customer would uh, store less? Or more. They, um, yeah, so everything's the same. Let's say they're facing exactly the same uh, uh, pricing process. Yeah. Um, 
done by the retailers or supermarkets. Uh, and uh, uh, they have the same amount of inventory at home. They have the same consumption rate. Uh, uh, a consumer with a lower discount factor, mm. uh, when they face a discount, when they see it, say, you know, when they face a, a temporary promotion, they should stockpile less. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this has implications for the merchants from a policy perspective. So mm -hmm. uh, you say one would over predict the effect of increased promotional depth for a product on its quantity sold by 18% the short term and 15% the long term. So when merchants, um, they have their own models, I would imagine, uh, when mm -hmm. they optimize promotions yeah. and their expectations um, if I understand this correctly, Andrew, need to be sort of tempered in terms of how much the consumer is likely to stop well? That, that's right. Yeah. So if, uh, if retailers are using, uh, if they're using a sophisticated model like this type, uh, then, uh, and, they, and they use the discount factor that was calibrated um, uh, in the previous research, yeah. Uh, then they will over, you know, they will overestimate mm. uh, that uh, uh, the optimal pro promotion that, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's a big deal because you know if you if you come up with some sort of profitability jump based on how much extra you can sell and you adjust your price accordingly, but mm -hmm. you're not going to sell that much, right? So so you're yeah yeah you yeah. you know they might be surprised yes uh, right. and. Uh, they may think the model is not doing well, uh, but it's actually just, it, it could be just one parameter they didn't get right. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. I want to jump into another uh, paper entitled A Structure Model for of Correlated Learning and Late Mover Advantages, the mm -hmm. case for statins. Um, so before we get to statins, you know, the, the, the basic idea here is that you have uh, a structural model of correlated learning and indirect inference to explain late mover advantages. Um, and so if somebody comes into market with some features of a fairly complex product, uh, the idea here is that the late comer, the, the late entrant into that market could have some advantages, right? Yeah, so the, the late mover can uh, potentially, um, uh, what I, you know, in the paper, what we call the free rider information provided by the incumbents. Yeah. Yes. And so they, they gain, yeah. it's not all bad, you know, of course, being late, there are some disadvantages as well, but that's, uh, by, but being able to leverage and free ride some information provided by in, your incumbents about the class of products that you try to get into that you try to sell, uh, that, makes, uh, that makes the late mover, um, uh, you know, to actually help them uh, in terms of uh, doing product awareness uh, and informing consumers about how to use their products and things like that, uh, that uh, they don't have to spend money on that. And in fact, if they, are, they have some uh, advantages uh, they have some part of features that are better than uh, their competitors. Um, in our model, we show that by just highlighting those features uh, yeah. and then free wide information provided by the incumbents, uh, they can actually, um, they can, uh, they can beat the incumbents uh, fairly quickly. 
Right, right. Yeah, and so you have a case in here uh, about the, the statins, the cholesterol-reducing drugs, and um, Lipitor um, is sort of a, a late entrant uh, into the market. Uh, pharmaceuticals is uh, quite an interesting area because uh, it's, uh, there are two things. One is the information that you, you talk about in the paper, uh, but there is also a risk, a risk uh, revelation uh, that happens. So statins being a class of chemical, uh, if somebody enters in that class and you can find out, you know, sort of what the, uh, what the risk of that, uh, that class of chemical might be, uh, it gives you two, in, two pieces of information. Uh, you may need to adjust uh, the economics of entering that market or you may want to tweak the product in such a way that you can take uh, take that risk factor or reduce that risk factor, right? Right, yeah, so in general, yes. I think you, yeah, you described it quite well in general, yes. Yeah, and so, uh, and this, this, this is applicable, Andrew, only in sort of complex products, right? Um, you know, uh, computers, uh, phones, pharmaceuticals, uh, and so, is there some sort of a threshold uh, complexity? Uh, I don't know if I'm asking the question correctly. That, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, um, but I think it's hard to really draw a line mm. to say a level of complexity. Um, and uh, so, uh, I th but, the, but uh, I'll, I'll give you another example that may help. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which is an example that we discussed towards the end of the paper in the conclusion part. Um, let's, let's think about iPhone, right? When yeah. Apple launched iPhone, right. it's so new, the concept. Mm -hmm. It's very new. And people didn't think that a phone with a touch screen um, can do so much stuff. Right. And, um, and Apple have set up Apple stores, let people go in, play with it, and teach them what this device can do for you. Mm. And so this involves a lot of investment in providing information about this product, in educating mm. the, the consumers. And uh, so they are very, uh, you know, it make a splash, obviously. And, and the, even today, you know, like um, 15 years later, we're still using a phone that is pretty much the same design. Right. Uh, and, but it, iPhone didn't, hold on to the market leader position right. um, for not even for a year. Uh, Samsung, uh, after six months, immediately launched a product that is look very similar. Yeah. Right? They, they run not iOS, but they run Android operating system. Right. And when they launch it, um, they already, you know, uh, they don't have to educate the consumers how this, what this device can do for them. Because hmm. Apple has already done that. For them right however what they do is they launch their phone the bigger screen size mm. uh, and they in the same price you get more memory uh, and uh, you get a little bit faster processor um, and and consumers are think oh you know these are the features I I can see, I understand you know so if I get a phone bigger than an iPhone that might even that's even more convenient. Uh, hmm. And I get you know even more memories in the phone, and so I don't have to run into this uh, you know memory constraints. Uh, so they can sort of extrapolate 
what they learn from iPhone right. to the Samsung phone and, and conclude and you know, by the time they decide to buy a Samsung phone instead of iPhone, these kind of extrapolations uh, may lead to the conclusion that uh, Samsung phone is a, better, is a better choice for them. So since the innovating company uh, knows this, Andrew, uh, strategically, um, they could raise some entry barriers. One of them would be patents, I would imagine, right? Yes, indeed, yes. And, uh, and that's, that was the case. Um, and, you know, Samsung and Apple was engaged in these patent litigations uh, for years yeah. because of this. Because of this, you know, uh, the Samsung, you know, launch of, the, of their smartphone. Uh, with operating system, user interface that looks similar to iPhone. Yeah, it's almost like a, an optimization problem for the innovate, innovating company that it has to basically have a, a horizon uh, that the product is going to be effective in and, and try to figure out. Uh, so feature introductions into the market during uh, over that horizon, there might be optimum timing for those feature introductions, right? To maximize profits? Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yeah. yeah. And, but it's really hard to quantify those factors that, that help us to determine what the optimal timing is. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you know companies do that or no? They, they sort of bring it, <laughs> so to speak. That's a good question. I think, um, I think for, uh, for tech companies, very yeah. big tech companies these days, like Amazon, uh, and they are really moving towards the direction that uh, uh, building a, a you know a, a, a big group of uh, researchers hmm. who have PhD in economics, computer science, operation research, uh, yeah. engineering. Uh, they have a huge team of people working on uh, things like this models. Right. Um, and they do it in-house. Uh, and uh, so they, uh, I know some colleagues working there, you know, they moved from academics to, uh, to John Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so there are attempts on doing things like this, what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, now that being said, you know, they are business, so they have to have, uh, they have to make uh, business decisions quite fast. Yeah, uh, and so uh, my understanding is that it's still difficult for them to, uh, you know, sort of wait for a few years to develop a model yeah. and then put it everything um, program it before you launch it. Uh, and uh, but they are definitely they have the talents in their company that mm. understand all these theoretical factors. Right, right. Uh, and so. Um, even when they are making decisions, I think they, they make a pretty good educated guess. Mm. Um, I want to uh, jump into another paper. Uh, zero, not always a special price. 330,000 consumer drug choices give no support for the zero price effect. So this is Swedish data, 330,000 consumer choices of medically equivalent drugs mm -hmm. to study the zero price effect. What exactly the zero price effect? Okay, so the zero price effect, uh, so this is actually a working paper, the one that you're looking at. Uh, yeah. we are, we're revising it. Okay. And so uh, I can tell you our research design, but in terms of the final result, um, uh, you know, I, I, 
um, if the working paper versions, the, the result may not be final. So I just okay, want to okay. yeah, um, no um, make a remark here. Uh, and uh, the zero price effect is something uh, that the consumer um, uh, behavior researchers and uh, behavior economists um, have documented in the lab before. Uh, and so what they basically documented is, uh, is that um, when you lower the price of two alternatives, Okay. So one is maybe charge higher price than another one. And uh, so they started the first experiments. They run is chocolate. So there yeah. are two types of chocolates. One is a more expensive type of chocolate. And another one is uh, um, um, much more reasonably priced chocolate. Yeah. And um, uh, so, you know, if you just set a normal price, you will see maybe, you know, uh, uh, 30%, you know, let's say 50-50. I, I don't remember exactly so, but yeah. it doesn't matter that much. I've just described the qualitative finding of their research. Right. Uh, and uh, so that was research started by uh, uh, Dan Eddy and uh, his co-author. Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's just say, you know, when you use the regular price, uh, the market, sh the, the choice share uh, from the subject is about 50-50. And then they show that, okay, let's lower the price simultaneously for both products by the same amount. Yeah. Uh, and with the price difference is the same. Uh, so, um, so within a certain range, you don't expect people change their choice that much. Same amount, same amount, not, not same percentage, right? Same amount. Yeah. yeah. So in the experiment, uh, if I remember correctly, they, they keep the price difference to be the same. Right. And uh, so they see, okay, when you lower the price, uh, the market, the, the choice share remains unchanged. Uh, even even when you lower the price up to just the, the cheapest product mm. um, and per chocolate, per piece of chocolate, you see, you know, you see the, um, the change a little bit, but, but not, not dramatically. But when you lower the price from one cent, okay, for the cheapest product to zero, yeah, and then for the more expensive one, you also lower it by another one cent. You suddenly see a lot more people buy the the the, the cheapest product. Mm -hmm. So so they argue uh, this is evidence that zero uh, is something special in in triggering uh, some kind of hidden. Uh, uh, consumer psychology process right. in their model. Right. And uh, so um, after their research, they have found, uh, there are other researchers that also found documents zero price effects in other, in other products categories. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you, when you think about it, that, you know, you might feel that, yeah, sometimes when you see something free, you know, then you, you get more excited, you know, and you feel that they, uh, you're more eager to just get, you know, try to get it. And there are a lot of different theories to explain that. Mm. Um, and uh, so in our, uh, in our working paper, uh, what we try to argue is, uh, what we try to investigate is in, in the pharmaceutical products, uh, would, are we also going to find zero price effect? Mm. Uh, and uh, so we have, uh, we use the data from Sweden and uh, the data in Sweden, uh, it turns out that the institutional settings in Sweden 
yeah. um, makes it very uh, makes it very suitable for us to investigate this zero price effect. Mm. Uh, and what happened is in Sweden, uh, it's national healthcare, uh, and uh, so everybody is covered by the government, um, in, including the prescription drugs. Uh, and the way that the government determined how much you pay for each prescription. Uh, depending on uh, your total out-of-pocket expense up to that point. Right? So, um, now if you have not spent anything yet, you know, mm. your first prescriptions, you was you will need to pay. Um, you need to pay hundred uh, percent. But if you have spent, for example, a um, hundred dollars. Yeah. Uh, now I'm, I'm I don't remember the exact number, but uh, let's just say, for example, after you have spent a hundred dollars on. Uh, prescription drug expenditures, uh, then you hit to the next tier. Now you are qualified uh, a discount. And mm -hmm. so the government will only require to pay uh, 75% um, for the prescription if you choose the cheapest product. Mm -hmm. And by cheapest, it means within and within what they call the exchange group. And so there, uh, when, when a, a drug, a chemical, um, is marketed by generic firms as well. Then there are multiple, uh, there are multiple uh, manufacturers, mm. multiple options uh, offered to, to the patients. And uh, so in, in Sweden, the price kind of fluctuates a little bit. Which, yeah. which one is the cheapest? Yeah. It varies from time to time. That's because uh, the government asks the manufacturers to submit a bid. Uh, two months later. So like for, for the next month uh, price, they have to already tell the government, uh, uh, let's say for example, now, you know, it's, it's September. Um, and uh, if I am a, one of the companies, let's say Mayan, uh, I, I have to tell the government in November, uh, that's the price that we will charge for this drug. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the government gather all this data and then if they would see which company charged the lowest price. And they would say this is the most this is the um, the price this is the drug of the month. Uh, and uh, so if if a patient choose that drug, then they pay um, they would just pay the, the co-payment that they're qualified. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but if they pick a more expensive drug, then they have to pay the price difference as well. Right. Okay, so what happened is um, when you they, they set up the co-payment structure in into tiers and so the more out-of-pocket expense you made uh you have accumulated mm. uh, and if you pass some threshold then you qualify for the lower tier lower right. co-payment tier right and so towards the the very last part is zero so if you spend enough you will not need to when you fill the prescription as long as you pick the uh, the drug of the month you need to pay anything you get mm. zero code. You you face zero price. Yeah. Uh, but uh, right before that, right before you hit that um, the lower the, the last tier, then you pay ten percent of the pocket mm. expense. Mm. Right. So we see that this is actually very similar to the lab experiments that uh, previous researchers have done. Mm. Uh, and uh, so we we see this okay as a counterpart of lab experiments. This is kind of a natural experiments. Mm. Uh, that we observe in the field, uh, and they are not college students who choose these products. These are real people who, who need to consume these products. 
And uh, so that address, you know, some common criticisms of uh, lab research. Uh, when you just use a very selected samples, you know, how generalized, how much you can generalize the result to the uh, to the general populations. Uh, and now I'm not criticizing those research. You know, I can I see a lot of values of using lab experiments to uh, to study theories, and yeah. I, I myself use that as well. Uh, but you know, here we have a sort of very unique opportunity for us to investigate the zero price hypothesis uh, in the prescription drug setting. And uh, so we might, you know, uh, what what the previous research have argued is for products that are uh, they call it uh, more hedonic, um, <laughs> as opposed to the target. Uh, the more hedonic those products are, uh, the more likely that we'll see zero price effects. Okay, so let, let me understand this, Andrew. So if you take a product like chocolate, let's say there is a high price one at five bucks, there is a lower price one at four bucks, mm -hmm. uh, you continue to reduce the price of both uh, equally, mm -hmm. you don't actually see any difference. Uh, and till you hit the, the four buck chocolate to zero, then suddenly you see a big effect. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, the pharmaceuticals, uh, it, it's um, it's a little bit about a complex situation, but I also wondered uh, if there is a difference, and that is, if if the consumer is using the price differential as a proxy for quality difference between the two products, the high price mm -hmm. and the low price one, yeah. um, it wouldn't really make any difference in the sense that, you know, it's, so let's say instead of chocolate, it's drugs now five and four, and then you continue to lower that uh, and one of them hits zero, you still have that $1 differential between zero and, you know, the, the higher price one is $1. Mm -hmm. um, and if the consumer is really thinking that that represents the quality differential between the two, uh, couldn't you argue that there should not be any difference uh, in that case? So I think, yeah, in the pharmaceutical setting, um, it is not like we see, you know, big changes of prices over time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I actually, I, I don't think, I can see theoretically uh, people, some people draw inference that higher price, mm. uh, better quality. Uh, and uh, we have control for that uh, in our regression analysis. Okay. Uh, and uh, in the sense that, you know, there's a brand name products there. Uh, and uh, so the brand name drugs, they charge higher price, but all other generic drugs, they charge very competitive prices. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I don't think you know, among the generic drugs, uh, some price differences uh, would lead to some consumers to think, okay, well, you know, one generic drugs may be better than another one. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of feel this is a secondary factor. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's go into another paper. Uh, how, how much do consumers know about the quality of products? Evidence from, oh, the, di know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Evidence from the diaper market. And so, yeah. 
so you're, you're uh, to measure the extent of incomplete information about brand qualities faced by consumers, recent research in marketing and economics has extended traditional static choice models to explicitly allow for consumer learning. And these models tend to be complicated and make uh, stringent assumptions such as Bayesian updating. And in this paper, you provide an, a simpler alternative method to measure how much consumers know about the quality of a quasi-durable product, right? You want to talk about that? Yes. So, uh, yeah. So you like, let me to just talk about how we, uh, what is the main ideas behind this paper? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so a lot of this, uh, um, so I, you know, consumer learning is, is one area of my research. Uh, mm. And uh, so what, what you see is that uh, in, uh, in this literature, what we call choice modeling, uh, in uh, conjoint analysis uh, and uh, market research or consumer uh, demand research in economics, uh, people use these uh, choice models a lot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now, one thing that is uh, tricky is um, oftentimes we use this model to try to infer how people th uh, think about the quality of the products. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this is what we call reveal preferences. Uh, and essentially, we are making this assumption that your consumer choice is a function of their own preferences. Right. And uh, so how they uh, perceive uh, the quality of different products will be reflected in their choices. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, if they perceive that iPhone is better than Samsung phone, you will anticipate uh, more people will choose iPhone. Right. So from the choice that we can infer that iPhone is a better product than Samsung phone. Mm -hmm. uh, now that just say, for example, I don't necessarily mean which product is actually better. Yeah. Um, and but that's the idea. Uh, however, uh, these type of inference also um, have a caveat. Uh, and the, the caveat is uh, the perceived quality or the quality that you back out from this approach uh, is really a perceived quality. It's not necessarily the true quality of the product. Mm. But perceived, I mean, in that, at the time when you make the transactions, in there, it could involve decision under uncertainty. Right. And you just don't know all the true quality, you know, how this product, how durable this product is, for example. Uh, and uh, so you buy this product based on your belief about how durable this product is. Mm. Right. And for example, car, you know, you might choose, uh, uh, the, you know, that's maybe one of the factors you consider how durable the car is. Uh, and uh, so now, then how do we know, you know, how do we know over time, you know, do people actually learn? Um, and, uh, and also, you know, is it really the case that, uh, when people make their choices, um, they really don't know the true quality of the products. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's very difficult using just choice to, to learn that. And, uh, in the previous research, we're building learning models to try to have a learning process explicitly model and, and then use estimate these complicated learning models to uh, to address this, but, but in this paper, that's not what we do. In this paper, we have a much simpler idea. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, going back to the durability, uh, so this is what what what, what we uh, what this paper could be useful for uh, for a durable good. Yeah. Uh, and 
so you can imagine uh, for products that are doable, um, you don't need to replace it as often, <laughs> right? So it's called, you know, if you have a car that's very doable, you don't, you can, you can use it for 10, 15 years. Um, but if a car is not that reliable, uh, you may have to, uh, you know, break down too often, you decided to replace it after a couple of years. And so just looking at uh, not just what brands people buy, not just the brand share or the choice share of the products, mm -hmm. what we can also look at is how often people replace a product. Okay. Or in other words, the purchase frequencies right. for doable goods. Uh, so because it reflects how doable the product is. Right. And, and so that's the idea that we use in, in choice data, in this kind of, you know, supermarket data, we actually also see uh, how often people buy the same products again, mm -hmm. right? And, and those, are, I, I, uh, uh, those are the products that um, we call it, you know, not, uh, but we can still interpret uh, how long a product lasts as some kind of like durability, what we call mm -hmm. classic durability. Right, so we, we use the example of diaper, <laughs> and uh, and you know you can imagine a good diaper, a better diaper may be able to store more <laughs> and mm -hmm. last longer, mm -hmm. and so you don't have to uh, change the diaper for a baby uh, if it's a high quality diaper. Maybe uh, the baby feel comfortable wearing it for whole for whole night, right, uh, and. But a diaper with a lower quality, maybe less comfortable, uh, the baby may complain after a few hours, right? And, and then you have to replace it. Uh, so by observing, you know, the quantity people bought, yeah. and we also see for different brands, how often people need to replace it, need to mm. buy again, mm. right? That itself, this in the purchase time, con you know, controlling for how many, uh, pieces that you bought before, yeah. uh, give us the information about the durability of the products. Right. And so that's that... how we try to measure and use, use this information to measure a more objective quality um, instead of the what we call subjective quality, just based on the brand choice. Right. But uh, so, so are you... Compare them. Yeah. So are you saying the paper that the, the consumer observes the inter-purchase duration and uses that as a proxy for quality and makes decisions. So when you have a longer inter-purchase uh, duration, uh, is there's a higher chance the consumer sticks to the same brand? Now, that's not necessarily the case. So we don't make that assumption. Okay. Uh, what we assume is that when you buy, when, which brand you buy, reflects yeah. your perceptions about which, how good that brand is. Right? So it's possible that you might think, uh, you know, what we basically assume is the, the durability, how often you have to replace a product. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the case of diaper, for example, is really dictated by, not by your perceptions. Um, it's dictated by your baby, how your baby really feel about that diaper. Mm. And so in that sense, you know, when the baby complains, if the baby doesn't know what brand you bought, mm. right? And um, uh, so, which I think is a clean way to measure the quality at this one dimensional quality, how this quality durability. Mm. Okay. But when someone 
buy a brand, you know, they may still be influenced by all this advertising um, uh, and uh, their friends, their family members, you know. Um, you know, it could be that a, a store brand is actually um, uh, as good as a brand name products like Pampers, right? Yeah. But you, you know, apparently may still feel, okay, I need to get better, something better for my, for my baby. And I, I, pers- I somehow I thought, Pamper is better than a store brand. But is there, is there evidence yeah. that consumers know that, um, Andrew? Uh, so, uh, so, so you're suggesting a simpler alternative method to measure how much consumers know. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there evidence that the consumers use these types of heuristics to, to measure quality? Uh, I, I think so. Yeah, there are yeah. definitely, uh, you know, in consumer res- behavior research uh, and um, in choice modeling, in, in even quantitative marketing research, we recognize this. We recognize that people don't have complete information about the, the products that they face. Mm. And uh, and there are a lot of external stimuli, um, advertising or the way, you know, the store settings, you know, display advertising, feature advertising, all this can influence somebody uh, buying decisions. Right. And uh, so, in other words, that affect their perceived quality at the at that moment when they make the transactions. Mm. Okay. And, okay. And so that can distort, you know, those things um, can distort their beliefs. That that can distort the the how they think about the brand, how they think about the quality. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, what we what we propose is, I think, the, the main highlight in our paper really is that uh, in, in, the, in the data that marketing researchers use or, or economists use a lot, uh, this scanner data um, mm. uh, that is available in supermarkets, uh, they actually contain more information than most people know. Purchase time. Uh, mm. And this in the purchase time, this panel data measure of, uh, of, uh, of this, piece, this dimension of data is also offering a chance to measure at least one type of quality, mm-hmm. and and that is that is not uh, pointed out in the previous research. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so and, I want to so once the... you have that, you have two different measure of quality. Then you can then check, you know, do people actually know the durability or not? Right. Right. Okay, so I want to close with uh, another one. So a heuristic approach to explore the value of perfect information. Uh-huh. Um, you say, how do people make choices in a dynamic stochastic environment when they face uncertainty about the return of their choices? Uh, the classical approach to this problem is to assume consumers use dynamic programming to obtain the optimum decision rule. However, this approach has two drawbacks. So, so talk about the drawbacks of, uh, of that approach. Oh, do you mean the, the standard approach? The standard approach, yeah. The standard approach is essentially um, in that approach, uh, this dynamic programming approach uh, assume uh, individuals are um, extremely smart. Yeah. Let's, let's put it that way. So yeah. they, the, that approach assume individuals is able to solve uh, a dynamic programming problem. Now, I, and that may not be a fair way to say that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's more like, you know, they, we, as researchers, you know, when we use that kind of model, uh, we don't literally think individuals will, will use that model in their mind, but more like, you know, 
what how they act, uh, as if uh, operated according to this model. So it's like as if model. Uh, and uh, now the drawback is uh, it is you know first to really put it in practice. Mm -hmm. This type of model is very difficult to solve computationally. Yeah, I can so, tell you. I can tell you, Andrew, that even in uh, you know um, large R and D environments where you need uh, <laughs> where you need dynamic programming to to get to optimum role, when you have staged investments, uh, many few firms um, in Fortune 500 actually do that. <laughs> yes, that's right. So even firms, you know, that they don't they don't do that, right? But I mean, the tech companies explore these type of models. Uh, they, they are doing this now, uh, and, and yet the, with consumer, is it a good way to uh, model consumers? Mm. Um, I think that's, uh, uh, that's an open research question. So that's in our research using heuristic rules is one way for us to sort of uh, offer alternative to, to the existing uh, approach in, uh, um, in marketing and economics. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, and I think it's reasonable to ask that questions that, you know, there are heuristic models out there uh, that are that help us to um, to look at how individual, uh, how um, agents uh, make decisions under uncertainty. And, and those are the kind of models that are indicated by computer scientists uh, and engineers. Mm. Uh, now, there in their mind, they don't really think of those models as the way to describe how individuals think. Uh, they think of that as more like, you know, they have to uh, program a robot <laughs> right. to explore something. Yeah. And so they, they are trying to find an efficient way to explore and exploit, uh, you know, new options. And uh, so, uh, but what we are asking is, hey, you know, there are some very efficient rules Mm. that um, the computer scientists have discovered. Now, wouldn't that be possible that these rules, these type of heuristic models, could be a better way to describe how individuals actually behave? Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's how, you know, we, that's what motivates our research. Okay, um, so it's sort of uh, creating rules or heuristics by almost trial and error of, of a very limited subset of information and then you know you, you you run number of different trials, and over time you get a heuristic that works for you. So there are different different ideas yeah. behind these kind of heuristic approaches. There could be some like what you described that are much it's kind of more naive type of learning. Yeah. Uh, and but there are you know the one that we pick, uh, and there's some you know, that's only one. But the one that we think and, and the things that we I think. Are, uh, Rani and I um, are more interested in. Uh, they are reasonable. You know, when you hear that heuristic rules, mm. you will see there's some sophistication there, and uh, and yet they're fairly easy to use. Right. Right. And so, uh, so it's not like completely uh, naive, uh, and uh, you can you can sort of when you hear it your first reaction, yeah, that sounds like a reasonable approach. That seems like a, a smart approach. Uh, although if someone is familiar with dynamic programming, then they may say, hey, but that's not completely right. You know, if I take all the information into account, you know, 
that will lead to different outcomes or different choices. Uh, and, and that's right, but that's exactly why we can, we believe uh, we can, we can uh, compare these two type of models and see hmm. which one describe individual behavior better. And so, so it's just interesting, Andrew, you know, um, as you know, when real options sort of became popular in the 90s, uh, there was a lot of research around, uh, we, we actually find nobody inside a firm, uh, no manager inside a firm using real options, typically. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, managers make decisions based on uh, gut feel and heuristics. Yes. Uh, often, they can't really explain how they made the decisions <laughs> either. Uh, yeah. and these are multi-billion dollar decisions they seem to make on the fly. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that no consumer is going to do a multi-stage dynamic crew grabbing a model to solve, to make, you know, to buy diapers, for example, right? And so... <laughs> yes, yeah, I think that's, that's right. Yeah, I think for, for grocery products, um, yeah. But what's, uh, that, yeah. you know, what might also be interesting to think about is, you know, the, the, the one research question might be that as complexity and data increase, it, it becomes more and more difficult to create heuristics, I would argue, um, because mm -hmm. you need more data, you need more trials, uh, you need more systematic view of the results of those trials. And so is it possible that the decisions made by consumers will become less and less efficient as, as more data uh, become available? I, I, I'm not sure if I would totally agree this yeah. viewpoint. Uh, and, uh, and I can see uh, from the firm's point of view, when more and more data are available, uh, they can potentially uh, measure individuals' heterogeneity better. And they can, uh, the technology as it, you know, as it improved um, the computational power and all this, uh, that uh, would allow firms to uh, to be able to uncover individual mm -hmm. decision rules more and more precisely. Yeah. Um, and uh, and from there, you know, and by that decision rules, I, I mean more like a reduced form decision rules. Uh, but that's a good starting point for us to. Uh, uh, to then, you know, do more reverse engineering to to uncover what heuristic rules people are using under different circumstances. Yeah, I was. Just... So, but I, I would not necessarily think that then it will uh, it would change the consumers the way they use heuristics. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be what you're, you're talking about. Yeah, I, I was just uh, just wondering. You know, so, so VPI, you've got a value perfect information. The consumer has some sort of a process that is much less complicated than what mathematically we would want to do. Mm -hmm. um, and they reach that process by trial and error, by experimentation. I, I was just wondering in a world of lot more choices and lot more features uh, for different choices, mm -hmm. uh, there is an explosion of data Mm -hmm. And so at some point, the, the consumers, you know, yesterday's heuristic is not valid for today's decision, right? And then yeah, the consumer yeah. is sort of lost. That could be, you know, yeah. I think I see what, where you're going, you know. 
let's just say the uh, development of search engines becomes a lot more efficient. I mean, yeah. it's already becoming very, uh, quite efficient. And, uh, but this search engine can change the way that people use heuristic. That's true, yeah. And, uh, now, before search engines available, one can argue that or if I'm thinking to buy, uh, uh, let me see what 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 are the things that I try to consider. Well, I was thinking to buy uh, uh, like three stat letter, you know, tools that can help me, you know, reach the top shelf. Hmm. And um, in the past, I may not care about that much. I just go to a store, you know, I see the it's available in this uh, home depot. I just pick it up and pay for it. But now, okay. you know, with the search engine, it makes it so much easier for me to figure out the price of different stores. I might actually spend time on looking into the, those information. Yeah, so technologies that reduce the search cost for consumers could become more and more valuable as, uh, as we go forward, potentially. It is, yeah, it, yeah. On one hand, it becomes more valuable. On the other hand, I think it's, um, I, I actually had a discussion with my students uh, just last week yeah. on exactly this. And, uh, and I think it's very interesting he pointed out that you know, because of the search engines become so um, common now, hmm. he found that he actually spent more time on doing this kind of shopping. <laughs> right. yeah. And uh, so he ended up, you know, actually when he looked back, you know, I wish I didn't spend so much time. I, didn't, I wish I didn't spend an hour on figuring out uh, and how to, you know, pick the best products uh, for something that's only worth ten dollars. Mm, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is that actually? Uh, I think these kind of tools. Um, we hope it will help us. But at the same time, I think there is a catch. You know, we we need to um, uh, we need to be a little bit more careful. Would that actually get us into? You know, sometimes we call. Uh, in the behavioral economics, we call gamifications, mm. and we fall into this uh, pitfall that uh, you know make it turn every buying decision process into a game, right. and and so then <laughs> you might end up just spending way too much time on on a on a buying decision process sometimes, even though you thought it's actually more convenient. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, Andrew. Uh, uh, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. And uh, thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. You know, I really <laughs> enjoyed our discussion. Thanks so much. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Bye.